Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Is the First Amendment always a force for good? Or has the First Amendment become a weapon in partisan fights to advance a particular agenda over others? Today, I will be speaking with Robert Post, professor of law at Yale Law School. Professor Post was the dean of the Yale Law School and is an expert on constitutional law, the First Amendment, legal history, and affirmative action. He's written many articles and a book called Citizens Divided, which looks at the constitutional aspects of electoral finance. Welcome to Unmuted. I'm excited to be speaking today with Robert Post, who is Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University, and I'm especially excited because Robert has written widely on equality, on First Amendment, on constitutional law, and also has a degree in American studies. So he's actually been trained not just in legal thinking, but also in literature and history and culture, and sort of has a great and deep understanding of how society deals with language and how language affects society. So thank you, Robert, for joining me today and welcome. I'd love to start us out by having you say a little bit about sort of how you got into, how your interest started in First Amendment law in particular, and give us a little bit of a sense of how and why this is such an important and critical concept to be thinking about. Thank you, Ulrich. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. So I uh, began life, as you, as you said, in uh, in a program in the history of American civilization at Harvard. So if I had had my first life to live that I could live, that I actually wanted to live, it would be as a literary critic, <laughs> not as a legal scholar. But that didn't work out. So I went to law school. And then after law school, I began to practice law in Washington, D.C. And my client, the major client I had, was the Washington Post. And so I became quite literate in the First Amendment, in the way it affected political discourse in the country. We defended the Post against very important libel suits at that time. And then I went to teach at UC Berkeley. It's one thing to practice law because the problems cross your desk, and it depends who your client is, what the problems are that cross your desk. But when you're, as you know, an academic, you have to make your own issues, and that's quite a transition. I was very fortunate because a wonderful First Amendment scholar named Jeffrey Stone who teaches at the University of Chicago at that time was editing a journal called Supreme Court Reports, asked me to write an article about a case that the Supreme Court had just decided about whether a newspaper could be subject to a restraining order, meaning could be censored, about the publication of documents which it had acquired through litigation, through discovery. And it was a very complicated problem, but I remember thinking my way through it And at that moment, there was a crisis in my head. Should I uh, think about this problem the way I would be thinking about it if I were representing the Washington Post? Or should I think about it the way in which a scholar should think about it and more or less call it as I saw it? And that was, I would say, the first great crisis of my uh, career as a scholar. And I decided in the end, I'm going to think about this not from the point of view of a First Amendment advocate, but from the point of view of someone who's trying to get to the bottom of it. And that started me in, in my career. I mean, I can't imagine more exciting things than working for the Post <laughs> in the 70s or 80s. And in today's day and age, we face similar questions of <laughs> whether newspapers are allowed to publish everything they obtain. Yes. So then you shifted to kind of what's the purpose of the First Amendment or what are the values that underlie this kind of thinking? Can you say a little bit about that, that shift from being kind of a direct advocate as a lawyer to someone who's thinking, what does the First Amendment do for us? Why do we value it so greatly? Well, the interesting problem of the First Amendment is that it purports to, to protect communication. And if you think about that for two seconds, you realize that everything you do is through the medium of communication. So how could everything you do become a constitutional question? Because the state regulates all aspects of your behavior, which means all aspects of your communication. So what could possibly be the intersection of a generic protection for the ability to speak, meaning to communicate, and the state's ability to create an orderly society. And this was a very profound puzzle. And I began to realize that you can only solve this puzzle if you think about First Amendment rights not in the abstract, not that there's something called freedom of speech which exists in the heavens, 
but rather freedom of speech exists for certain specific historical purposes. And if you articulate them, then you can know how they interdigitate with the various other forms of of regulation which the state needs to do. Don't people think it's kind of intuitive to us? I want to express myself. I want to speak my mind. This is natural to us. This is when you say communication. I want to be heard from the position that I assume, and there should be no regulation whatsoever. So this intuitive, ahistorical understanding that it's a God-given right or, let's say, natural right, how does that intersect with the other part where you say it plays a role in how the government and society function? Well, the most natural way to see that is um, contracts. So you remember when the Supreme Court used to set aside progressive legislation in the name of freedom of contract. We call that Lochnerism because Lochner versus New York is the case in which the court found unconstitutional a regulation which put a 10-hour cap on how much bakers could work in the state of New York. And it said, well, bakers should be free to contract however they want. So now the question is, what's a contract? Hmm. It's words on a page. It's saying, yes, I agree to that agreement, which is itself articulated in words. So everything that you do in the commercial space, everything that every legal arrangement you ever make in your life is done through words. So standing back and looking at that, if they were protected because they were words on a page, um, the state would never be able to regulate almost anything. Right. Interesting. Now, I have a vivid mind. I'm imagining a baker now at 10 hours. So how did Lochner get re- decided ultimately? <laughs> ultimately, they said it was unconstitutional to to limit uh, work to 10 hours. So that looked like a dis- decision in the name of freedom in a way. Sort of people should decide for themselves what is good for them. Does this apply to speech? And we'll get to, we'll move this along a little bit to sort of the questions that are sort of roiling the culture right now. So, this, this, so you're saying the state has an interest in understanding and in communication how language operates to structure interactions between individuals. Completely. All social practices, any social practice you can think of, always occurs through the speech which constitutes the practice. So take another simple example. You go to your lawyer and your lawyer gives you an opinion. Don't do this, do this, do it this way. It's all done through communication. It's all done through speech. And the lawyer screws up Mm-hmm. and you want to sue the lawyer for pra- for malpractice, does the lawyer get to say, well, it's my autonomy, it's my speech, which, of course, it is his speech? No. The state regulates the competence of the lawyer's speech. The state regulates social practices that range from buying stocks to the practice of medicine to what it means to teach in a university to what it means to be an employee in a million different ways. If the state is regulating the social practice, it's also regulating the speech by which the social practice is constituted. So and it does that to ensure that certain things can be reliably done. So when you're saying it regulates speech, for example, medical speech, you go to your doctor, when you want an opinion, he gives you the wrong opinion or she does, the doctor cannot say, that was my First Amendment right to tell you something that's completely wrong or misguided or uninformed or there are consequences. So... <laughs> That still means First Amendment rights apply in that sense, that person still has a right to speak, just the consequences are something that can be addressed in other ways. Well, we have to be precise about what we mean when we say First Amendment yes. rights apply. So the precise way to ask that question is, if the speech is regulated, is there a constitutional defense? And the answer is the doctor has no constitutional defense, period. The lawyer has no con- So First Amendment rights don't apply But, of course, he's speaking. So one has to be careful about how one characterizes what's going on. Here's a nice case that I use in my class on First Amendment. There was a a book published called The Encyclopedia of Mushrooms. And it tells you, you know, the different nature of mushrooms. And you use this book as a guide when you go out picking mushrooms. And it tells you which mushrooms will kill you and which mushrooms are safe. And the book got it wrong So someone goes out, relying on the book, picks a mushroom, eats it, and dies. And his estate sues the publisher of the book. And the publisher of the book says, First Amendment. We can say whatever we want. There is no test of truth in the area of the First Amendment. You rely at your own risk, caveat emptor. The person who died said, what are you talking about? You put out an encyclopedia of mushrooms inviting me to rely on your information about what it was safe and not safe to do. And the court, which was deciding this case, said, look, 
if we make the publisher liable, we will interfere with the marketplace of ideas. So the First Amendment does apply to the book. You can't sue for um, the fact that you relied on the on the book and um, your friend, your child died. Now, notice how what the court is doing there. It's constituting which parts of society can rely on which parts of society. It could equally have gone the other way and said, if you publish a book of that kind, which invites reliance of that kind, then you'll be liable. So if you buy a car and the car manual says, um, unhook this wire, and the car blows up when you do, and you sue the car manufacturer, that will be product's liability, even though it only happens through speech. Because we all understand that that speech is such that you are entitled as a consumer to rely on it. But the Encyclopedia of Mushrooms is an ambiguous case, because it could be just viewed as somebody's opinion about mushrooms. And when the court decides whether or not First Amendments apply, it's constituting the social practice as much as receiving the social practice. A a set of decisions which have been very controversial after the Great Recession, the credit agencies rated the credit of many corporations, and they were really unconscionable ratings. They gave AAA ratings to a lot of corporations which shouldn't have it. And when people sought to sue the credit rating agencies, they defended and say it's just our opinion that it's AAA and it's just speech. You can't sue us. And the courts have gone with that. I think that's an incorrect holding. But what they're saying is which kinds of speech can you rely on and which kinds of speech are are we going to apply the First Amendment to, meaning there are independent persons in the room who are talking to each other as equals. Interesting. All these examples, I mean, kind of dramatic examples, life and death examples, you know, financial ruin examples that illustrate how important speech is. So why do people then, do you think, tend to still say, First Amendment rights, these are my First Amendment rights, when you're actually trying to shift that into another space? I think that is not quite the way people should maybe frame all these debates. Well, people say all kinds of things without (laughs) thinking them through. (laughs) And in this case, you know, if you thought about it and they, you know, they applied the idea of First Amendment rights, whenever you talked, it would literally be an ungovernable society. So, um, in, in what sense can you explain that a bit? What that would sh- mean? Sure. If you look at what First Amendment rights consist of, they are rules like no content discrimination. The government can't regulate that speech based on its content or its viewpoint. They consist of rules like every idea is equal to every other idea, or as the court has said, there's no such thing as a false idea for purposes of the First Amendment. There's an equality of status of ideas in the realm of the First Amendment, or we can't make you speak if you're First Amendment. Now, these are very powerful rules. So can we go through these three three rules? So give us an example for each one. So the first one, there's no content discrimination. What would be an example where the state would improperly discriminate based on content of an idea? Well, suppose the state had a rule which said you can publish books um, for Trump but not against Trump. Interesting. That would be viewpoint discrimination, or content discrimination uh, would be um, something like you can publish um, novels, but you can't publish satires because people get hurt. Those would be examples of content-based rules, which the court is quite opposed to, right. if First Amendment rights apply. So let's say you, can have, you can't say in a city you can have only political demonstrations of one kind, for example. The state should stay out of that, say, in the park or the street. You can express any opinion you want. Correct. And, and then to the second rule, uh, so the state cannot discriminate based on content. It also cannot really say these ideas are utterly false or nonsensical. It doesn't decide on the merit, let's say, or the value of that. Can you Talk a little bit about, more about that. So, some, I mean, it used to be the case when you said democracy is terrible, I'm for socialism or I'm for fascism, the state could come in and they could say, look, there's certain ideas off the table, and there's many countries in which that's true, um, not in the United States. Um, that's basically a rule against seditious libel. It's a rule against saying we are going to judge um, the truth or falsity of your opinion. The court has had some decisions where they say we won't even judge the truth or falsity of your facts. So there's a congressional statute called um, the Valor Act, which um, protects um, certain kinds of military medals. You cannot, under this act, falsely claim to have received a congressional Mm -hmm. medal of honor. And somebody did. 
and was prosecuted by the federal government. The court said, no, you can't prosecute it, even though he knew, knowingly told a lie about whether he had received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Even that is protected. So in the sense, the government wants to stay out of the business of deciding on what's, true. The, on what's true. And then the last, the last rule or norm you gave, and tell me the distinction between those two things here, the rule would be the government also cannot make people say certain things, right? You can't compel speech. Right. Just as you have a right to say whatever you want, you have a right also to remain silent. So a famous case is, I can't compel you to salute the flag, to uh, pledge allegiance, or... I can't make you have on your license plate live free or die mm. if you're a Jehovah's Witness and you don't believe that you should. So under government rules, you may stay seated when the national anthem is played. You may not put your hand over your heart. You may actually take a knee. You may do all sorts of things. The government cannot compel you to acknowledge certain things. In the situation where First Amendment rights apply. So now think of these three rules. They're extremely powerful rules. Yes. So under what conditions do they apply? I'm going to go back and I'm going to um, talk about the question you first asked me, which is, why do we have First Amendment rights in the first place? It turns out there were no such thing as First Amendment rights insofar as we're talking about judicially protected rights until the 1930s. Until that time, the Supreme Court of the United States had never protected anybody's freedom of speech. Remind me in my American history. I thought First Amendment, Bill of Rights passed a little bit before the 1930s. So tell me what happens between 1791 and the 1930s with the First Amendment. So the First Amendment is ratified 1791. And it's thought to mean there can be no prior restraints, meaning you can't require a license for a publisher before the book is published. But it's also thought to mean I can put you in jail for what you say, a subsequent punishment. So we had the Sedition Act in 1798, which put people in jail for criticizing the Adams administration, constitutional. Okay. So um, the first time the First Amendment assumes anything like a modern form that you would recognize as a modern form is in the 1930s. But the people begin to think of it as having this other life beginning in the second decade of the 20th century. The first time it's judicially articulated at the Supreme Court level is in dissents by Oliver Wendell Holmes and Brandeis. These are dissents, not translated into court opinions. And the cause for this change is a very deep one about self-governance in the United States. Let's stay with this for one moment. So Brandeis and Holmes, 1920s, are the first time they're bringing up the First Amendment. 1919. In 1919, in the dissent. Until then, we really don't hear much about the First Amendment from the Supreme Court. And it is... So that's kind of an important thing to note, that it becomes not a vivid kind of concept that informs that debate and actually doesn't show up in jurisprudence. And then to go back to what you just said about, so why is it instituted in 1791? What is the idea behind it to ensure what you call self-governance? Well, it's, you know, it's complicated and it's controversial, but the judicial interpretation of it was that Blackstone had talked about the freedom of speech of Englishmen, and that referred to the absence of prior restraint, meaning the end of the Stuart King's licensing regimes. And um, Blackstone, in the mid-18th century, puts that in as an essential right of Englishmen, and we um, also take that as a right uh, within the United States. But there are those in uh, the 1790s who have a broader account of it. Madison did, Jefferson did, but not the courts. The courts did not. On the whole, you have no mention of this in Supreme Court decisions, no mention of freedom of expression. So Harlan Stone, who was one of the great justices of the 20th century, writes a book on constitutional rights in 1915, doesn't even mention freedom of expression. Justice David Brewer, who's one of the great defenders of federal constitutional rights, does not mention freedom of expression. The First Amendment is mentioned for freedom of religion and the absence of establishment, but no one talks about freedom of speech. Very interesting. The cause of this change is, is a very deep one. It has to do with the fact that in 1791 and right through the end of the 19th century, Americans would understand themselves to be in a republic meaning self-governance happens through systems of representation. You elect people to represent you, and they conduct the governance representing you as they did. So you select the people who represent you. So there isn't much of a difference between those who govern us and ourselves. They just happen to represent us, but we belong to the same kind of general body of people. Well, up until the Jacksonian period, they represented us because we deferred to the better sort. Yes. They were the squires. They were the people who were wealthy, who were educated, and you were expected to defer. 
along comes Jackson and the great democratic revolution where we'd have no deference. So who's going to represent us? That's when we invent mass political parties for the first time. And so the basic theory is the party sets forth a set of principles. You pick the party that has your principles, and the party's going to tell you who is going to represent your Mm -hmm. principles in government. So you vote for a political party. Mm -hmm. And your allegiance is to the political party that then governs in your name if your party wins. Now, what happens at the end of the 20th century is political parties become associated with corruption. They are bought out by the corporations. They represent this railroads. End of the 20th, end of end the of 19th, 19th century, yes. Okay. End of the 19th yeah. century. So political parties represent uh, corporations. No one trusts them. They're corrupt. They're bought out by the political rings who are taking corporate money and then giving corporations favors. And so there's this great effort to go around the political parties and have a direct relationship with your own governance. We have, at that point, the invention of referenda, of initiatives, of recalls. We have the direct election of senators for the first time. We have direct primaries for the first time. Political parties aren't going to pick who the candidates are. I'm going to pick, as a voter, direct primary. And all of this is in the name of democracy. So in what sense now are my representatives going to be linked to me? The answer that emerges in the 20th century is I'm going to be able to form part of public opinion by speaking in public. The state is going to be responsive to public opinion, and hence the state is going to be responsive to me. So you think this is the shift sort of from the 19th to the 20th century. It goes from this self-understanding of a republic. There's a certain kind of class of people who govern us. And then there's a kind of what I could call shorthand democratization, more people involved. What you also get is, you know, you get black Americans vote, you get women to vote 1919. So you have more participation. And you're saying at that point, it becomes much more important as an American citizen to speak out for your own concerns and be heard and not restricted. It's that self-government lies in my ability to help form public opinion and in the responsiveness of government to public opinion. This is an extreme. So public opinion is the mediating concept here. Extremely important in understanding how it is that uh, now I have a, a First Amendment right. What's that First Amendment right? To participate in the formation of public opinion. So not to practice medicine, not to sell goods, which is all off the table for First Amendment rights, but to participate in the formation of public opinion. And this public opinion, so let's just stay with this for a moment. So this is to enter ideas into public discussion that I consider important. And I may be the only one, or there may be many other people, but I want to enter them without restraint, without someone telling me I can't talk about this. So this is a sense that Anybody should be able to enter anything into this into this forum of public opinion. Right. So notice that the three rules that I gave you define me as a sovereign. Insofar as I'm telling the government what to do, I'm sovereign. The government can't tell me what to do. So the rule against content discrimination says that the government can't set the agenda for public opinion. Public opinion sets the agenda for government, and the government can't intervene as an agenda setter. The rule of all ideas being equal represents the postulate of democratic equality. Vis-a-vis the government, we are all equal. There are no experts in, in the realm of public opinion. We all are equal. It's not an epistemological equality. It's simply silly to say that all ideas are good ideas, they're better ideas, there's worse ideas, there's stupid ideas, there's smart ideas. But... There is political equality, and on that we're agreed. So when we say all ideas are equal, what we mean is everyone has an equal right to have their ideas. It's a political equality which underwrites it. And with respect to the idea of not compelled speech, it's that the point of speaking is to make the government responsive to you. But if the government can make you say things you don't want to say, obviously it's not going to be responsive to you. So these three rules define you as a sovereign citizen who is in the realm of public discourse, meaning public opinion formation, telling the government what it should do. Let me me stop you for one second, sort of to think about this as kind of there's a language game. This is a game. We're setting up the rules. The rules are the government can't tell me what to say and what not to say. And I can say what I want to say. The government ought to listen because it's that's supposed to function. What if I say things that say I want to get rid of the rules of the game? 
meaning I want to overthrow the government or I don't think the government should have these, this authority or that authority. And um, so I challenged the game itself in a way as a rules. And that's the speech that always becomes the one that people are interested in. That's the speech that says, for example, I'm against political equality or I'm against even the government having any authority over me whatsoever. What does the government do with that kind of speech? Well, very early on, there were cases with people, you know, denouncing private property and et cetera. Some people said, well, without that, we're not who we are. If you're against our constitution, you're, why should we protect you? And the answer is, we're protecting you in your capacity as a sovereign. And if you want to change what we are, that's in your business. What we prevent you from doing is acting on it. So this requires a very strong speech-action distinction. We can, you can call for revolution, but you can't act on revolution. And we make that distinction with something called the clear and present danger test. So let's say, so I want to have a revolution as long as I don't show up with my own militia and weapons and I stand in front of City Hall there's no risk. I'm just calling for a revolution, but it's not going to happen. So the clear and present danger is, will it be implemented? Is it likely to succeed? Is there any chance it would take a kind of course that we want to prevent, right? So this distinction between speech and action has to be done then. Does it have to be done in every single case when it becomes important? Because we can't really predict what speech will become action at some point. If I'm calling for a revolution to storm the state house or the courthouse or whatever it is or the White House... If people do that, that's not allowed to be said if it's really reasonably something that could be enacted, right? Correct. This is the problem. So um, in the 1920s, before there was freedom of speech, but the court was at that point thinking along the lines of freedom of speech. So explain this a little bit. Before there was freedom of speech to speak, people spoke freely. You mean there was no constitutional attention to this at all in a way or legal attention from the court? I mean, people said what they wanted to say and then were thrown in jail for okay. saying it. <laughs> okay, okay. And there was no, there was no constitutional protection. Okay. Because there was at that point no First Amendment rights in the sense we're talking about First right. Amendment rights. So in a, there's a you know, famous case, Gitlow, and in Gitlow versus New York, after McKinley's assassination, New York had made it a crime to advocate anarchy and revolution. And this person published a pamphlet, The Left-Wing Manifesto, in which he was advocating for revolution. And they throw him in jail because he's convicted and he published this pamphlet. Holmes dissents and says, there was no chance, no clear and present danger that this would be acted on. It's the 1920s. People in raccoon coats and drinking campaign. They're not making revolution. And the majority says, we don't care. Um, it's because a single spark can cause a conflagration. They're saying all we need to think about is the tendency of the speech, not whether it's actually going to, in any tight sense, cause an illegal action. And so long as that's our standard, then this meets that standard because it's advocating something. End of story. Once freedom of speech becomes entrenched into the court's doctrine in the 1930s, which it does to protect our ability to make government responsive to us, the court said if we're going to have such a loose test for what could cause speech to be regulated and sanctions imposed on speech, that it has the tendency to cause something we could otherwise prohibit, some conduct that which we could make illegal, there would never be any free speech. So we need a much tighter connection, causal connection between the speech and the conduct which we can regulate. So we try to err on the side of most as much speech as possible should be protected unless there's very credible evidence of a clear and present danger, a threat, something that's imminent. So all these categories have to be really close, really any reasonable person should be able to say them because otherwise the government can always overreach and say we don't like this because there's a danger here. So from the 30s until, say, the late 20th century, where does the court move in this area? The story that I know is sort of familiar seems to be that it expands or strengthens kind of speech protection going forward here. So from the 30s, so you just mentioned what happens in the next few decades. Well, it's a complicated story because the court is very strong in protections of freedom of speech in the 30s and early 40s. And then along comes the Cold War mm. and the court panics in the face of the McCarthyite hysteria. And it allows all kinds of speech to be regulated because it says, well, this idea of a clear and present danger test may have worked back in the teens in World War I. That was a simple time when people stood on soapboxes, but here we have this worldwide conspiracy of communists that plot in secret, and we can never know when, it, when they're actually going to have a putsch, and so we have to get them early on. And so there were a whole set of very restrictive decisions in the 50s 
which the court climbed out of by the 60s. And by the end of the 60s, the court has established what's still our law today, something called the Brandenburg Test, which says you cannot regulate advocacy of illegal conduct unless it's advocating imminent action and imminent action is likely to happen. And give us the outline of the Brandenburg case. What's at stake there? That was a case of a Ku Klux Klan meeting, which was burning across and saying, basically, African-Americans should go back to Africa. This is 19, if I'm remembering it right, 69, I think, 68, like right in there. Justice Brennan writes the opinion, this procurium for the whole court, and said no, because they didn't advocate imminent action and it wasn't imminently likely to happen so they can go in the fields and do whatever it is they're going to do. So the question is, an act of speech, which is burning a cross, signals to a community an intention. And the court says this intention isn't clear enough, and hopefully, let's say, nothing happened there, so they can burn this cross, and it's offensive or upsetting or provocative, but it is not leading to violence directly. And that's the test here. So speech gets expanded to say it's, this is simply speech. It is not direct incitement to violence. It's, Well, nothing is ever simple. So there's a, a couple of uh, cross-burning cases in the t 21st century, and a very important one is called Black versus Virginia. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the court makes the distinction between what it calls a true threat and simply burning a cross. So if the cross is burned in a way that is, it calls it a true threat, you don't have to go through the thought process of clear and present danger. It's, you can't threaten someone. That's just not a form of protected speech, says the court. And so a threat like, I'm going to burn down your house, that's off the table as protected speech to begin with. So sometimes when you burn a cross, it's a true threat. But if you're the Klan and you're burning a cross at your own meeting, you're not signaling to someone a threat of a certain kind, then it's a kind of political speech unless it meets the brand. Interesting. If there's speech, if there's intention behind it to target or address someone in particular, a family, a group, an individual. I mean, these are upsetting cases. It's to think of even people burning crosses and then to think that our government would protect such speech is very upsetting in a certain way. What we want to get to is what you've explained, the importance of actually being cautious to regulate speech because it could affect all sorts of people. It could just not affect bad people who want to do bad things, but it could affect people who don't agree with the government and other issues, and then the government could say, we're restricting this. That's the concern. Um, you've also just outlined that jurisprudence of our country shows that speech understanding changes over time. We have a different sense of it. The court has a different interpretation and response to social realities. In turn our social discourse is shaped to a point by Supreme Court decisions. It restructures it to a point, but only to a point. If I can move you forward into sort of the present time and the things that are kind of really sort of animating, I think, a lot of Americans today are speech in specific situations. One of them is university campuses. Another one is probably football stadiums. Another one is the press. If we stay with university campuses, where do you think... Um, This call, which we hear very robustly all the time, there should be First Amendment applied to campus and everybody should be able to say anything they want. How, how do you make sense of this conversation right now or this argument? Okay, so I want to come back to the three rules yes. and how they make you a sovereign citizen. So Alexander Mickeljohn, who was one of the great theorists of the First Amendment, said the interesting thing about democracy is that we're both sovereigns and we're subjects. We make rules for ourselves. So explain this. We are sovereign and subjects. Who are these two groups? Well, so we, we make a rule, and who do we apply the rule to? It's ourselves. Us, right? So we're both the subject of the rules, and we're the maker of the rules. So insofar as we apply these three rules to all our speech, we would never be subject to any mm -hmm. rules that we could make. So implicit in the notion that we protect speech in order that we may democratically govern ourselves, we could be sovereigns, is the notion that we must also be subject to the rules we make at a certain point. And if that were not true, then we wouldn't ever have the benefits of being a sovereign. We couldn't ever do that. So what are these limits? When are we subject? When are we not? A simple point to make in this context is if we want to accomplish anything as a society, we do it by creating an institution to accomplish the goals that we set in public discourse, in public opinion. So we get together in public opinion and we said, we're going to have a national health service. How do we do that? We create an organization that is a national health service that provides health. 
So now let's look. Which we do not have in this which country. Which we do not just have. to just put that in there. <laughs> let's take a Social Security Administration, right? So we, okay. we want to have a Social Security Administration. We want to have some kind of safety net. Yes. So how do we do that? We create a Social Security Administration, which gives out benefits, et cetera. It's an organization that has as its purpose the implementation of the Social Security law. Now, in public discourse, we get together and decide what are our purposes? What do we want to do? In the Social Security Administration, we know what our purpose is. It's to implement the Social Security law. So there's a specific purpose, and everything done in there should kind of lead and fulfill that mission and purpose. Correct, including the speech of the people in the Social Security Administration. So if an employee of the Social Security Administration gets on the table and sings the Star Spangled Banner and doesn't give you your benefit checks, I have to be able to regulate that employee, even though they're just speaking. Right. Right. So it means very strict regulation according to an instrumental rationality of the speech of the person inside the organization. So there's a purpose. The speech there has to fulfill a purpose, has to do certain things. If you just want to sing songs all day but don't fill out the paperwork that people need, you're not, you're not doing that purpose. Okay, you're not. Correct. And that means that the rules that define the First Amendment, the essential rules, can't apply within that organization. Now, what is a university, you ask me? University is an institution with a purpose. What are its purposes? Education and research. The three rules of the First Amendment cannot apply in there because a university has to be organized in a purposive way. So in, when I teach a class, students don't have freedom of speech. They exercise content discrimination. I say, we're going to talk about the subject of the class and not a different subject. All ideas aren't equal. I grade so their... I want to talk about Meryl Streep's performance in the Post, and you want to talk First Amendment right, and the press, you can actually tell me we want to get back to the subject at hand because the purpose is to learn something about the First Amendment or the press and not about Meryl Streep as an actor. Correct. And imagine what that would be like if the students could talk about whatever they wanted in your class and basically standing on the table and singing Star Spangled Banner. You could never teach your class. And would that have anything to do with First Amendment, where the government should not restrict or discriminate based on content? It's obviously not that. Obviously I mean, not, yeah. I, I can't do that. Well, the first rule is you can't discriminate based on content. So in a class, I can tell you you can talk about this, but not about the other thing. The second one is, are there bad ideas in universities? Government says there are no such thing as a false or bad idea, right? Right. So I get my students. I give them grades. The grades are supposed to separate the bad ideas from the good ideas, right? So the very principle of education and research is my ideas are bad, and we put them aside and we don't discuss them anymore, we move on. This was maybe something as a counterpoint to something maybe heuristic or pedagogically important, but we don't discuss this any further. Right. My job is to teach you how to discriminate between good and bad ideas. That's my job. What about the third rule? The government cannot compel you to speech. You cannot be made to sing a song to praise a governor of a state or something like that. In the university, can I compel you to do something? Right. Well, if you don't show up and write your examination, you're not going to pass the class. So this would be the third <laughs> rule for the way in which we understand free speech protections under the First Amendment that don't really seem to apply in the university. Why do we have these controversies in universities then all the time about free speech where you have one side saying absolute speech rights are essential for the marketplace of idea to drive out bad ideas and to arrive at the truth and advance our understanding of the world? Well, look, we just talked about a very simple case, which is students in a classroom. When people say we need freedom of speech to advance knowledge, typically they, um, they might have in mind uh, my role or your role as a professor who needs to have the freedom to do research. And you do have freedom of research. You have academic freedom of research. But does your academic freedom of research correspond to the three First Amendment rules? The answer is no. So universities make judgments based on content and viewpoint all the time when they uh, evaluate uh, faculty. And employ faculty. And employ faculty. basically you're employed based on your expertise. So if you're writing about something in a completely different area, you will probably not be employed or keep your job in that field. Right. I hire people because I have an area in American literature and not this. Um, um, I, I give grants to people because I think that um, this is an area of research I want to foster in a university. And all ideas are not the same for research. I give tenure to people who have good ideas, and I don't give tenure to people who have bad ideas. Isn't that a bit worrisome, though, to hand over authority to kind of a group of experts or administrators who decide these ideas are not good and we shouldn't hire people? Doesn't that result in what people call groupthink and 
the whole discipline is just following one trend because nobody is supposed to be an outlier and to raise any other questions or concerns? Well, hopefully it's not administrators because this is a faculty judgment, not an administrative judgment. And faculty here means... What's their qualification? Faculty are expert in the disciplinary standards by which disciplinary competence is meant to be assessed. Administrators are expert in how to run a university profitably. They're expert so, in being so responsible. So in the law school, when you're hiring somebody to teach a course, on particular on contracts or somebody, the other law professors, they know enough and they assess whether this person is qualified to do that, has enough knowledge, and can impart that knowledge. And she may have other ideas that are great but irrelevant, and they can rule that out freely. Correct. Right. Now, uh, you know, uh, one of the maladies to which disciplines are subject is, as you say, groupthink. Any discipline to be alive has to be subject to this internal critique. That's what academic freedom is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you freedom within a general notion that you're supposed to be competent to say what you need to say. It doesn't rule out judgments of competence, would be completely inconsistent with the First Amendment, but it's supposed to give you freedom within the realm of confidence to make judgments which are disparate from those necessarily in authority. But of course, everyone knows a discipline can go wrong. They can have groupthink. That's a bad thing, and that's how you could criticize a discipline. And the bottom line is, as opposed to what? If anybody could say whatever they wanted, then a discipline could never exist. You would have just complete anarchy. Well, and you probably wouldn't want to be at that university. You actually would think if anybody can say anything they want, you actually go for expertise. And so there is a kind of <clears throat> robust exchange and a kind of debate between different experts, and they may have very, very different opinions. The irony is actually in universities, there's probably more disagreement than anywhere else within one discipline, that exactly. people do not all think the same way, that actually they will fight to you know, a kind of metaphoric death to say, I defend my position versus the position next to mine. Right. I mean, to show you this concretely and specifically, suppose you're a young professor who doesn't get tenure and you sue the university and you say, you know, this was a biased decision. You know, I mean, I should have because my work is really good. So you, you sue the university and it goes to a court. How would a court decide that question? The answer is the court would uh, bring in experts and say, how good is this work? And so what the court is defending is the judgment of the discipline of experts. If the work is really good, it might conclude that the university was making miscalculations. So at that moment, the court defers to the university as a... No, to the experts. To the experts in the university as... To, to the experts. Interesting to say this is the judgment of a field and sort of what merits yes. consideration in this field. Of a field, field. not of a university administrator, first. Right. Second, it doesn't defer to the free speech rights of the professor. The professor doesn't get to say whatever they want. Right. The professor can only say what the field recognizes as competent good work. So it's not a First Amendment right, which applies to the professor as an individual. But notice we increase knowledge by having a field and by protecting the standards of a discipline which both acknowledge and define what knowledge is. And that shows why people are wrong to say a marketplace of ideas produces knowledge. You can crowdsource what is the half-life of plutonium-230. It's not going to give you an answer. Right. Or it may or may not give you the right answer. It's kind of the Wikipedia model, How which would you is know wonderful, whether it gave but you, you right. probably wouldn't rely on it entirely if you need to make an important decision for your life. Wikipedia <laughs> says um, we do not, we're not here, we, we're here only if you cite a recognized authority, which is to say one recognized by the field. Interesting, interesting. Let's get to the controversial thing. So you have another area of the university where people are invited to speak, which is really important, enlivens debate, brings in this maybe viewpoints that otherwise are not represented. And they're invited not always by the group of faculty experts, but maybe by a student group or somebody. Um, how should universities respond to that? Because it generates enormous amounts of turmoil, as we know. It's really disrupted certain things. And people feel disrupted in the wrong way because the university should just allow all sorts of people to come to campus and speak. Okay. So let's now take the case of a student speaker. Unlike teaching in a classroom, the educational function is just not clear here. Students student groups who invite a speaker are not ordinarily conceived of as part of the educational mission of the school, nor do they a research mission. So what standards do we apply to that speaker? And it's because we're unclear about the standards to apply to the speaker that this metaphor, and I think it's a metaphor, that there's free speech rights should apply, um, comes about. Can you clarify one thing when you say we're not clear about the standards? So you say a little bit more about what 
could be, or why are there no standards right now? Or why are we not clear? Why doesn't the university have very clear rules of who gets invited and when they get invited and what they get to do? Well, I mean, the first way to address that question is to ask why. I mean, in a modern university, typically what happens is st each student group is given a certain amount of money and, the in and authorized independently to spend that money on whoever they want to bring in to speak at the university. So the student group, the university delegates to the student group the use of a certain amount of university resources to spend on outside speakers. That's typically the way it happens. So the question is, why is the university doing that? Is the university like giving away money to a charity? No. Can the university spend its money just because it wants to? No. Universities have to spend their money to serve their missions. What are their missions? Plainly, this isn't a research mission. It's an educational mission. So it must be the case that the university believes that it serves the educational mission of the university to give students the authority to spend university resources to bring in a speaker. So How might it do that? How could that be true? It might be that the university says, well, we're making them like little adults, and they should be able to be like adults and exercise the authority, and maybe they learn from that. Maybe the university thinks by allowing a myriad of different student groups to invite a myriad of different speakers, we create a climate on campus, which is like a general public, namely you have to... You have to rub shoulders with people you detest the way you do in the general public space, and that's educational for students and good training to become Democrat. I don't know what the answer is, but that's the only reason that students get to do that in the first place, that it serves the educational mission. So what about the argument when students say, someone coming to campus and questioning my presence on this campus, and I'm not qualified by group belonging because my group shouldn't be in STEM fields or my group isn't really ready to be in education with other groups, etc., arguments like that, that interfere with the fact that we're all here on an equal basis and the ideas merit, not my group belonging, who I am, what position I speak from. What if students say, this doesn't not only not help my education, but it actually interferes with it. I'm here to do calculus and not to debate whether I should be at the university. So when you invite somebody who disputes that, that interferes with a major principle of education. How would you think one could have this conversation in a productive way? Well, I mean, the first I want to say is when you hear someone say, is First Amendment rights, the first question is, well, how did the speaker come on the campus? Because it served the educational mission. How did the students pick that speaker? Did they pick that speaker randomly? Did that speaker wander in like on a park? No. The students picked the speaker because they thought the speaker had something worthwhile to say. So the students are exercising the content discrimination that the university would ordinarily exercise. So there is no First Amendment right anywhere in this picture. There's already been a decision made this person versus other people because it's not that everybody comes all day to the university. So this particular person for particular reasons. So there was content discrimination. Exactly. And there was the notion that all ideas aren't equal from the get-go. So nowhere in this picture does the First Amendment right kind of fit in. The speaker has no First Amendment right to say, hey, you know, University of Wisconsin, I have a right to be in your auditorium. No one would acknowledge that. All right. So that's the first point. Second point is... The educational merit of giving to the students the authority to invite the speaker is something that the university needs to articulate and defend. You know, we've kind of backed into it. In the 1950s, universities didn't do that. They didn't give resources to student groups to invite who they wanted. They did when the university lost its role in local parentis and began to view its students as little quasi-adults in the making, and they wanted to help them along toward this role. So we give you a certain allowance and allow you to spend it because it trains you in the responsibilities of being an adult. So... If Once you articulate that, then both the limits and purpose of it and its balance against the educational detriments of the policy become pretty clear, and you can begin to speak about that. That's on the one side. On the other side, when a student complains about a certain speaker and says, this speaker hurts my education rather than helps it, well, we need the university needs to be able to say to that student, well, what is it you want to get as an education? So what is the educational mission vis-a-vis -vis you, vis-a-vis -vis all of us, of the university? M myself, I would say part of what the university tries to achieve with its students is the transition from late adolescence to a mature independence of mind. 
And that means the university tries to get students in a position where they can think for themselves about ideas, all ideas, including ideas that they will encounter when they're an adult in a democratic society, which means detestable ideas, ideas which will be held by people that you'll have to vote alongside of and try to canvas and try and persuade, but you disagree with. So how do you assimilate their ideas? How do you evaluate them? How do you reach your own conclusions about them? That's part of the educational right. task of modern education. I think the, the question we had much earlier about public institutions is where where do the rules game become something to be debated? So the students are saying, when someone comes in and says, you particular set of students should not be here, which is the incidents we've had over the last couple of years at American universities, the students are saying that is not worthy of debate in academia. That's maybe somewhere else in the marketplace of ideas. That, But I should not be sitting here defending my right to attend this university after I've been admitted, enrolled, and paid my tuition. Right. Well, my own view is that I, I sharply distinguish between ideas and the manner of expression. So someone comes on campus and they calls names or singles out particular students, which you couldn't do in your classroom as a professor. You can't. You know, I, as a teacher, do not allow name-calling in my class. I don't allow racial epithets. I don't allow racist speech because students can't be educated in that. On the other hand, I have to teach about rape. I have to teach about affirmative action, and a lot of people have different ideas that other students find offensive. They find the ideas offensive, mm -hmm. but in my class, you have to think about those ideas because they differ. And in fact, the court, the United States Supreme Court, is going to have a lot of ideas you're going to find very threatening. But my job is to teach you to take a threatening idea and to master it, and to know what you think about it. So I'm resistant about the notion that an idea can displace you. In a, in a college, in a university, which takes as its educational mission training you to achieve a mature independence right. of mind. But one of the things that's true is many students come to contemporary colleges. They view their education not to get them an independence of mind, but rather to get them a job, to get them upward mobility, in which case this is a distraction and they shouldn't be subject to it from their own perspective. So what we have to do if we're educators and we're committed to the idea of education I just described is we have to talk with all the parties about what we're trying to achieve, therefore the distinctions we draw, therefore the justifications for the policies that we have, etc. Interesting. Okay, I think we're going to have to wrap up. I think this last point is really important that you're saying there's maybe different ideas of even what education is and that actually students have to be brought into it and in a certain way also held accountable for if they're inviting somebody, why are they doing this? And if other students say this interferes with my whole purpose and my reason for being here, then that has to be taken into account as well. To take those into consideration in an honest way rather than to say we have a couple incidents and we just move on from them. Yes, free speech is not an accountability point, you know. Free speech is when you don't have accountability. Accountability means I must answer you. Moreover, from the perspective of a university, our job is to educate. Rights are not about education. Rights are about an end state of people who are already sovereign. What we need is a theory of education that tells us how to get from point A to point B. The idea of a right can't be it. It's rather policies that get us from point A to point B, and we have to be able to defend our policies in terms of their educational impact. Thank you, Robert. Thanks so much for joining me here, and I will talk to you again at some Thank point. Thank you, Thank you. It was you. great.